When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. SCP-5005 Lamplight The SCP universe is generally not considered to be beautiful or poetic, leaning more towards horrific and weird. But there are occasional glimpses of evocative and poetic anomalies scattered about. The SCP we'll be looking at today is part of the SCP-5000 contest, so there is an air of mystery here to be sure but this one stands a bit apart from most of the others that focus on horror and death. SCP-5005 is a settlement located 3,449 Waylons to the multiversal east of the Central Reality Compass, whatever that means, and 87 Waylons beyond where matter is ordinarily capable of permanently existing. That means a bit more as this settlement is located outside of normal reality, in a zone where existence normally unravels. But something is keeping this place safe. As far as the Foundation is aware, 5005 is the most remote matter in existence. The settlement is constructed on an expanse of Earth-like substance, which conveniently acts as fertile soil. The Foundation knows how big the settlement is, but isn't quite sure how big this expanse of ground is, as it's impossible to travel too far away from the town's primary light source. This primary light source is a large biomechanical lantern hanging over the settlement, which in addition to casting a dim light akin to a full moon over the town, also acts as a reality stabilizer, allowing the place to exist amidst the void. This lantern is suspended above the town by a large protruding tendril emerging from the expanse of ground somewhere, and is composed of a hardened and strengthened form of the same ground substance. What exactly the ground substance is composed of is still unknown, although scholars have proposed a link to Sriskin holochrome, whatever exactly that is. It doesn't seem that the Sriskins could create something like this, though, and not even long-term residents of the settlement have any clues about it. We're given a document about various theories that researchers and residents have come up with over the years related to the origin of the Expanse, written up by project lead Dr. Franklin. The founding of the settlement itself is quite well known, actually, as we'll see but knowledge about the Expanse and the Lantern above is extremely limited. Since the Lantern contains both biological elements and mechanical elements, it seems clear that it was a synthetic creation of an unknown civilization, but the Foundation hasn't been able to find anything similar to it in their searches. The similarities to the Sriskins is brought up again, which seems to not be the name of a civilization, but an entire universe. Dr. Franklin mentions that the similarities that the Lantern has with the Sriskin universe are also found in other universes 
in the same cluster, including the Adzain, Harkret, and Karak universes. Nothing those universes possess is as advanced as the reality stabilization effect of the Lantern, though. Theories include the Expanse being a research experiment of the Old Empire, a Neo-Austrian birthing ground, the remains of a Harkret Pioneer's anglerfish, or an Adzanian horse-culling center. Obviously, something is a little different about the foundation we're reading about, as we're getting a lot of names thrown at us that don't mean anything to us. The brave or suicidal residents of the settlement that have ventured away from the light have only reported more and more darkness, and a gradual, unsettling feeling. Everyone that has tried to head out to explore has either swiftly returned, or disappeared entirely. One anecdote stands out though, about a particularly daring or drunken poet from about a century ago, who decided to pick a direction and travel as long as possible. He was apparently suicidal enough to travel longer than most others, but not enough that he didn't eventually come back. On his journey, many miles from the town, he looked down at his hand and saw that it was beginning to unravel as the void cannot sustain reality. Staring into the distance, he saw a brief glint of light on the horizon and headed towards it, thinking that he was close to the settlement. After crossing a large ridge, though, he found a massive glassy orb, the color of milk, embedded into the earth, with a faint light beneath its surface. Somehow, he managed to make it back home, although his body had significantly broken down by that point, and he soon died. He managed to get his story out before he did, though, and it's stuck in town legend since. We're then given a series of essays related to different aspects of SCP-5005, written by different researchers and scholars, not all who work for the Foundation. These authors come from both the Soul and the Orchard universes, and it's presumed that the Soul universe is our own. First up is the history of the settlement, which, as I said, is well documented. It was founded by a poet from the Orchard universe named Jean-Antoine Delacroix, who stumbled upon the Expanse after he was left in an extreme depression after a painful breakup. He attempted to commit suicide through something called Arc Blinking, which would seem to be some sort of teleportation system. He launched himself in a random direction of space, hoping to end up in the void surrounding the multiverse where he could be unraveled into non-existence. A hell of a way to go out. He did end up in the void, but actually close enough to the lantern to see the expanse, and he was curious enough to go check it out. He was able to teleport back home, and afterwards launched a series of expeditions onto the expanse, finally founding the town of Lamplight in the year 2107. As suspected, this SCP article takes place far in the future, in a time with vastly advanced technology and cooperation between multiple universes. Delacroix founded Lamplight so that it could be a home for the damned, the dispossessed, the refugee, and the lost. Since almost all of the initial inhabitants of Lamplight were artists, writers, and intellectuals, it didn't exactly take off. Delacroix fell into another depression, and disappeared entirely in 2110. 
Since then, most of the inhabitants of Lamplight have continued to be academics and artists, or survivors, or descendants of survivors, from two major influxes of refugees. One of these groups was the survivors of Neon London in 2396, and the other are the remnants of the tribes of the Many Steps in 2419. Not many would have interest in living in a small, isolated place like Lamplight, unless they were interested in the science behind it, its inspiration for art, or because it was a safe place to live for those with little choice. Although the lantern stabilizes the reality around the expanse, it still causes fluctuations in aging, meaning that every person who comes to Lamplight ages at a potentially vastly different rate. Some visitors have aged the span of a human life in 24 hours, while others show no signs of aging after centuries. An interview was performed by a junior Foundation researcher, Sofia Ramirez, with the owner of a Lamplight Tavern, Sergei, who arrived in Lamplight in 2109. The date of the interview is November 29th, 2524. When Sergei first arrived, Lamplight was small and cold, with fewer buildings, fewer lamps, and less snow. Ramirez asks him how is it possible that there's snow but Sergei just ignores her and keeps talking. He says that it was better at the start, but not because of Delacroix, who would spend all of his time staring out into the dark. Sergei says that this place wasn't meant for humans, despite the soil being perfectly suited for supporting human life. If this place was made for humans, it would feature a sun above it, instead of a dim lantern. Ramirez brings up that other civilizations got close to creating places this far out, civilizations in the Sriska and Harkret universes. Sergei responds that those civilizations weren't human, and if they did manage to make this place, they're long gone now. When Delacroix brought people here, the only ones that agreed to come were the same old crowd of poets, who only talked about the great utopia they would build, but didn't want to get down and build it. Sergei says that he is the only one left from those days, and when he arrived, Delacroix had already fallen into his depression, drinking excessively. However, Sergei thinks that part of Delacroix loved the misery he felt here, and most agree that he wrote his best poems while here in Lamplight. Most people living in Lamplight don't care to think about Delacroix much, because they all know what happened to him, that he stepped into the darkness to disappear. He used to say that the knight does not give such easy answers, and Sergei thinks that Delacroix didn't want to die, but rather wanted to destroy the idea of himself, and that's why he went out there. Next, we get a bit of info about the structure and society of Lamplight, written up by a professor of Eastern Multiverse Studies. Lamplight is broken up into five small districts, loosely gathered around a central plaza, the Wolf Square, presumably named after Delacroix's former significant other. Three of the districts were formed by various groups of artists, and two were formed by refugee groups. The Kievan, or Victorian district, was the first, founded by Delacroix himself in 2109, with an architectural style that resembles a mix of Victorian and Imperial Russian styles, with some differences such as a strict adherence to cobbled streets and gas lamps. 
This district is deliberately disorganized based on the whims of the city's founders, but is commonly used for meeting places and public concerts. The Ethereum district was created during the cyberpunk revival of the 2350s, which itself was a response to the Burnt Apple War, which caused severe destruction on the Earth of the Orchard universe. The cyberpunk revival was notable for inspiring a deep cynicism and disillusionment with politics, and the architectural style from the time was modeled off of industrial decay and internet subcultures. The Ethereum district's anarchist politics soon spread across the rest of the settlement. The Jato district was founded by a group of artists from our universe after the Namibian crisis of the 2390s, sparking a radical return to pre-modern times in response to the evils of the present. The group was vehemently opposed to all realism in art, and the architecture of the district was exclusively Gothic or Romanesque church styles, with an emphasis on the light refracting properties of stained glass. The early days of the Giotto district featured an ascetic, medieval morality, but that has since fallen away to a district known for their passion plays and communal and charitable activities. The neoclassical district was founded by the refugees of Neon London in the early 25th century, built using an 18th century British architectural design, and featuring a large number of green spaces, flowing curves, and a stated desire to create utopia. This district was far more rigorously planned than the others, and was meant to be an ideal community of elites. The original plan has long been abandoned, and now the district is home to a great number of literary circles. Finally, the Nomad District is home to the surviving tribes of the Many Steppes, featuring many yurts and other nomadic tents. The center of this district contains a Manichean temple, and the Nomad District frequently houses refugees from across the multiverse. Despite the obvious historical, political, and philosophical differences of the different residents of the districts, conflicts and disagreements between them are rather uncommon. Each district has their own unique celebrations, but one major festival is shared by all districts every year, around the time it would be midwinter on Earth, called the Parade of Candles. Junior researcher Ramirez did a write-up about this festival, which starts at what would be 6 a.m. Residents from all the districts meet in the central plaza, where they engage in acrobatic performances, poetry readings, artistic displays, and musical recitals. It's noted that many of these performances and works use the surrounding void as a subject matter, but discussion of the void is rare in general. This continues for several hours, while the owners of taverns in Lamplight construct a large pyre in the center of the plaza, which is rarely lit on fire due to the prevalence of fog and snow in Lamplight. If the pyre can't be lit, the population of Lamplight will link arms, dance around it, and return home to cook evening feasts. If it can be lit, though, a shared feast is set up in the plaza, consisting of both crops grown in Lamplight and imported food. After the meal, candles are handed out, and the population lights them from the pyre. Taking their lit candles, the people spread outwards from the plaza to the edges of lamplight, 
where they join in a succession of hymns. Ramirez notes that this ritual is indicative of the population's obsession with the light and fire motif that is present in so many of their artistic works. The next essay is about the culture of lamplight, written by a reader in literary history at the University of Old Kiev. Despite its small size, lamplight has had a highly significant impact on the history of multiversal literature, art, and music. Many artistic figures over the centuries have visited or lived in lamplight for some time, seeking inspiration from its unique place in the multiverse. Painters, musicians, poets, novelists, so on and so forth, have created countless works inspired by the community of lamplight, the moonlight effect of the lantern, the endless void surrounding the settlement, and the lives of those that would permanently reside in such a place. It's notable that the works of visitors or new residents tend to focus on the void around lamplight, whereas long-term residents create more works based around the community of lamplight, or on lights or sensual pleasures. Most visitors come to lamplight specifically for the void, whereas long-term residents have lost interest in it, believing that trying to understand lamplight's mystery is pointless. Come for the void, stay for the community, I suppose. Interestingly, the unexplained nature of fog and snow in Lamplight is almost never mentioned. Junior researcher Ramirez conducted an interview with a poet from our universe, Juan Lumiere, who settled in Lamplight a couple hundred years prior. The interview is conducted outside of the bustling Firefall Tavern, and Lumiere appears to be a man in his 30s, despite him being 278 years old. Lumiere says that it doesn't feel like you're living longer here, just that your years have been spread out longer, like skin stretched over a drum. They begin discussing his poetry, about how most people tend to like poets' works from when they first visit Lamplight, when they write about the darkness and the void. Most outsiders can't appreciate when poets abandon those concepts and write about communal life in the town and the motifs about light and fire. When Ramirez mentions that she came here to solve the mysteries of lamplight, Lumiere tells her that she won't solve anything, as he's seen so many like her come through here. They turn the discussion to Delacroix, specifically his last poem, about the people that come to lamplight. Artists come here because they think they should, to find inspiration in the depths of the human soul. When Ramirez states that this town should not exist, Lumiere retorts that lamplight was inevitable. He goes on to discuss how many who come here are obsessed with the darkness, literally and metaphorically, and never understand that lamplight was created to be a beacon against the darkness. He finishes by warning her that one way or another, she'll learn that there is nothing out there. Clearly, the psychological impact of residing in lamplight is an important facet of its existence, and the next essay is devoted to that, written by a Foundation psychologist. A minimum of 14 disappearances occur every year in lamplight, almost entirely suicides by void, despite the high standard of living in the town. Psychologists have considered the effects of 
lack of sunlight, an unvaried diet, or an unpredictable light source, but the fact remains that most of these disappearances are of artists, writers, and academics who have been residents for less than a year. In the weeks leading up to their disappearance, they follow a similar pattern of behavior, consisting of an obsession with the void, an increasing dependence on narcotics, and a greatly increased output but diminished quality of work. They will also become increasingly isolated and aggressive towards others, refusing any attempts to help. Four Foundation personnel stationed on Lamplight have disappeared over the years, leading us to Director Franklin's report on Ramirez's status. He notes that her voice sounded more strained than usual. She seemed nervous and was sweating profusely, and several times he thought he smelled alcohol on her breath. Despite the generous allowance the Foundation had provided for her, she had chosen a small room at the top of a tavern with little heating and no light. When asked about her choice, she said that other rooms were noisy, and she needed quiet to work. Franklin believed this at first, but later remembered two other researchers who had made similar choices and had to be pulled off the project, as they developed the notion that a higher room would take them closer to the source of the void. Examining her room, Franklin notes that the bed did not look like it had been slept in, Several fiction books on the shelves were coated in dust, and there was a half-empty bottle of gin on the mantelpiece. Ramirez's handwritten notes were surprisingly rough, with odd breaks in writing tone and lack of professionalism in interviews. He had chosen Ramirez for this project due to her resilience and reliability, but it's clear that the psychological impacts of lamplight are not easily predictable. He asked her a few simple questions about living here, but she quickly grew paranoid and resentful of his presence. She mocked the townspeople for being rural, their traditions and community as worthless, and lamented their lack of curiosity in the lantern and the void. She also displayed little interest in Lumiere's writings, despite her previous passion, and actively disdained Delacroix's works. What she had done, though, was developed a plan to find a location where the weird physics of this place would allow her to see the entire expanse that Lamplight was built on. She had done an incredible amount of research into this plan, finding the exact spot where this could be done, and she had designed a craft that she believed would allow someone to safely travel to this location. Franklin told her that this was madness, as the location was so remote that no craft could keep its occupant alive for the return journey. Ramirez told him to leave, and he did not tell her about his intentions to take her off the project, as it might damage her emotional state further. He concludes his report by saying that this place is incredibly mysterious, and it needs a great deal more attention than the Foundation has given it so far. The final essay is also written by Dr. Franklin, concerning the future of research into Lamplight. Obviously, the cultural and social aspects of Lamplight are important in the wide view of things, but to the Foundation, the nature of the place's existence is what's most important. He discusses the unusual weather found in Lamplight, the heavy snow and fog, which are surprisingly not found in the Orchard universe that Delacroix came from. 
The source of this weather is entirely unknown though, but it's believed to originate at some point above the lantern, and keeps the town covered in a thin layer of snow at all times. Despite its omnipresent nature in the town, there is a near-complete absence of the weather conditions in any artistic works, and the townspeople rarely discuss it. Researchers that worked in the town report after leaving that the weather made them feel uncertain or lost, but the foundation has ruled out any mimetic or cognitohazardous effects. The only known work to mention the weather is Delacroix's final poem, which was written in a much more modernist style compared to his other works. It was found unfinished on his desk the morning after his disappearance. I'll read it in its entirety. Cold entrance cuts the mountain where I buried you. Salt and brine whisper down the waterways of ash where you ran, laughing. That mouth-made twist turned bitter. Here on the edge of human eyes, I stare into the mirror of the dark. That mirror that sears my ravages of bone and brings such images of the world's dismay. Its broken, luminous char its dreams of all the starving artists, beavering away in opium, or simmering soft in pain, casting off the trappings of the world, which leaves just silence, soft and cold disdain. The hearths and songs that bleed with frail light have drawn to fires those who huddle tight, their raptured peasant fear cast before the tongs in cheer. I walk, a figure in the fog of old laments, away from these twin tales, and into the snow, into the earth, with no narratives of foes, or platitudes of friends. The snow gives rot, complexity, ennui. The night does not give such easy answers. Finally, we have an addendum about junior researcher Ramirez, who disappeared from her room at the tavern one day, A search eventually found footprints in the snow, heading towards the edge of town. The following day, a signal was received at a monitoring station set up in Lamplight, showing video footage from Ramirez's shoulder cam. It seems that the footage was transmitted from the location she mentioned to Dr. Franklin, and she's in very poor physical condition. She begins by saying that she was right, and Dr. Franklin was wrong and she turns the camera to show lamplight from a distance. The light from the lantern above it refracts across the void, showing off the entirety of the expanse of land that lamplight rests on. It's revealed that this expanse is the corpse of an augmented Harkretian anglerfish, most of its body eroded by the void, but the face and jaw are intact. The lantern is the lure of the fish that it would use to attract prey, and its eyes are visible, possessing a milky white color. Ramirez can be heard laughing for a while before a coughing fit, blood floating in front of the camera. She says that this is the end of the line, and the puzzle has been solved. She begins to sob, wondering if the Harkaritians who traveled out here on this anglerfish died here or ran away, or found something else out here that was even better. She continues to cry until she begins to fade away entirely, 
fog and snow creeping in to obscure the camera. Her last words are, The night does not give such easy answers. So that's that. The mystery of Lamplight is sort of solved, but leaves even more questions. And the point of the whole piece is that the mystery of the expanse and the void don't really matter for the people that have found a home there. It's not an SCP about the end of the world, or some indescribable horror, but instead it's about the beauty of a light amidst darkness. It's an incredibly evocative piece, from the imagery of lamplight, the poetry, the motifs, and the people that are drawn to a place like that, a home unlike any other. If you're disappointed that there isn't some great big reveal about the void and the horrors of the darkness, then you're missing the point because the night does not give such easy answers.